right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Connect podcast. I am Michael Lilly, joined as per usual with Brother Neil Height. Um, Neil, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with some updates about where people have been this past Sunday, where they're going to be uh, coming up. I guess it's Christmas, right? So Christmas where, Eve. Where they're going to be on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. So this past Sunday, the 17th, we had Michael McCormick at Free State, and then Dale Anderson was at Beach Grove for us. Uh, Dale has just started helping out just recently, so we certainly appreciate uh, another person stepping up and being willing to go and do some teaching and preaching. Yeah. Christmas Eve, another light day, uh, unusually light for us. Uh, right now, the only folks we have out is Michael McCormick, who is going to be at Beach Grove. Um, so that 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 kind of surprised me. I was expecting to uh, a greater need, yeah. especially you know you know some uh, congregations may have ministers and preachers who have family elsewhere and they needed Traveling. to go. And I was expecting that to be a big day, but it's not. But now next week when we update for the thirty first, there's going to be a few of us out uh, on the thirty yeah. first. That, that fifth <laughs> Sunday usually. Fifth, first usually hit us oh, pretty yeah. hard. They do. Second is uh, hit or miss a lot of times. It was busy this month, but uh, we'll see how it looks here in the next few weeks. Uh, so all that being said, out of the way, uh, Neil, I'd like to talk about Christmas. Well, it's a and good we time. Can, yeah, we can call this episode a Christmas special if we want to, but, um, you know, we have this... Uh, not sure what exactly to call it, this thing uh, in the Churches of Christ of almost being very against Christmas uh, in the sense that the rest, of the way the rest of the world celebrates Christmas. Um, of course, the rest of the world celebrates December 25th as Jesus' birthday. That's a tradition that's been held since uh, a, a, between three and 400 uh, A.D. Uh, when Constantine kind of made that a thing what we are really big on you know a lot of people are really big on in a lot of places is the fact that nobody knows Jesus's birth scripture doesn't tell us scripture also doesn't tell us that we should celebrate it or recognize it as as a, a Christian holiday so to speak uh, that being said there's the only Christian holiday it talks of in the New Testament is the first day of the week uh, arguably so again that being said the Bible doesn't mention the exact day it kind of vaguely mentions the time of year given that there are shepherds out with their flocks um, but that being said in fact most most historians will also uh, agree that the earliest Christians didn't really celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birthday. They didn't celebrate Jesus' birthday, uh, period. Um, according to Roman history, that, that date of December 25th was first used uh, to attribute to the birth of Jesus, uh, again, somewhere between 300 and 400 A.D. Um, when the Christian church in Rome began celebrating what they called the Feast of the Nativity. Uh, at the time. One theory is that the 
celebration of Christmas as the birthday of Jesus is based on a pagan feast that happened on the same day, um, Saturnalia. And essentially, as it goes, uh, it's argued that Christians usurped a pagan holiday and tried to use it for the glory of God. There's that's that's a very widespread popular opinion amongst uh, the world today. Uh, it's something that comes up when you talk about Easter as well. That that's a pagan holiday that was usurped by Christians. Um, that being said, about Easter though, we know the day that Jesus was killed and the day he was resurrected because it was during the feast of the Passover. Passover, yeah. That can uh, be the, calculated. That can, that can be pretty closely calculated. Um, but that's you know maybe another topic for another time because people feel very strongly about that too. They did. Um, there's another theory that, that I thought was interesting when uh, reading some things this week that a theory that Jesus was killed, I don't know how this came up, but March 25th is the date that a lot of, or, or that Christians in, in the past had traditionally recognized as the date that Jesus was killed. Um, and they held the tradition that Mary was told on March 25th as well that she was going to have, uh, that she was going to have a child be born uh, from her. And exactly nine months from March 25th is December 25th. Uh, so that's that's one tradition uh, that I thought was interesting that was held. But again, most scholars believe before 300 to 400 A.D., early Christians didn't celebrate Jesus' birth in any way at all. And their entire focus was on Jesus' teaching, on the apostles' teaching, but and really on Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That That is really what people focused on. Uh, but ever since Constantine made it an official Roman holiday, Christmas has been widely popular and widely celebrated as the birth of the Messiah. Um, and you know, you're, you're, as you're telling this, you're basing this on uh, documents that we have from the early Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, folks, that is secular history, but it is written by those folks who were very closely uh, uh, yeah. in the time to the things that were being done and we can look at what they did then and they had direct instruction from the apostles or from those that for which they had taught and sent out which you go back and that was direct instruction from the holy spirit that jesus had promised them before he ascended yep so you go back and look and bluntly if we want to get what they got which was a massive growth of believers in Christ, we've got to do what they did, which means we need to look back and what do the scriptures tell us? And, and if we have history that tells us, here's how they did things and this is the results they've got, that's, that's there for our learning. I, I, I truly believe now, I, I know Paul was talking about the Old Testament yeah. when he said these things were written before time for our learning. But that but, principle can be held exactly yes. for this too. Of course. Now, I'm not sure. saying we take it as gospel, but we take it as, oh, okay, this, this is an example. This is, yeah. And since they literally received their instructions from the apostles themselves, um, probably spot on. We need to look at that. Yeah. Um, so, so all that to say, 
Uh, well, the last thing that I'll say is that there actually was a time in American colonial history, actually, where um, the Puritans labeled Christmas, the holiday, as a British tradition and uh, basically dropped the custom altogether. And in some places, they made it illegal to celebrate <laughs> Christmas uh, because of because of that and uh, the animosity towards oh, yeah. uh, Britain during the time. But by 1870, uh, it had become, again, widely popular and, again, has, has grown into what it is today. Um, so all that to say, the, the real question here for us to, to start talking about um, this afternoon, is it wrong to celebrate Christmas for a Christian? And more specifically, is it wrong to celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birthday for a Christian? Um, we'll start with that, but then there's there's some other places we're gonna we're gonna go with that. But uh, I'll let you give your thoughts on those those two questions. Is it wrong for us to celebrate celebrate Christmas? I can't think of anyone who claims to name Christ as their Savior that would not celebrate the fact that He was born. Now, a specific date? No. And here's the reason that, that, that a lot of our brethren are so adamant about this. We want to make sure we teach the truth. And if I tell you December 25th, is that's definitely Christ's birthday. If I say that, which I won't, if I say that, and I can't back that up, I'm teaching you a doctrine of man. I'm teaching you false doctrine. And if I will teach you falsely on one point, what other points will I teach you falsely? Precisely, yes, yes. Uh, you're basically, everything that you say and teach from that point is, everything's called into question. Everything that you stand for, everything you believe in. Uh, if you teach wrong on one part, who can trust you? Absolutely. Uh, so Absolutely. I definitely understand that. That sentiment, and I think that's something we should take very seriously. And there are th some things that are misrepresented at this time about Christ's birth. For example, you see the nativity scene, and you'll see three wise men at the stable where Jesus was in the manger. And number one, the Bible doesn't tell us how many wise men. And some would say, well, you're, 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 you're picking at things. We know there were three gifts. Okay? Yep. And men, being plural, they had to be at least two. So, out of assumption, many times folks put three there. I'm not saying there was. I'm not saying there wasn't. But Matthew's account tells us when they show up with those gifts of the child, <laughs> Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 said, when they had come into the house, they weren't at the stable anymore. They weren't in a manger anymore. They were... Yeah. In a house. Yep. And again, I'm not trying to, to argue semantics or things like that, but the bottom line is we if we have an opinion, we need to state, hey, this is my opinion. I think there was. And Scripture says it. You say, here it is. Yeah. Black and white, here it is. No argument over it. You may say, Neil, I think there were four. And I'm saying, you know what? I think there was Six. That would make sense. Two of them went together and each one, you know, each two bought a gift. We don't know. And, and for us to go into contention over that would absolutely be wrong. Yeah. 
But me to say, no, he wasn't in the manger anymore. He was in a house. That's scriptural. Yeah. I also, it's it's also interesting because um, you you talk about that nativity scene that everybody gets in their minds of basically Jesus and his parents being in a barn uh, and all the animals surrounded and hay everywhere <laughs> and it probably smells awful. A little but, bit different stable back then. But if you, well, at the same time, the original text uh, says that there was no room in the inn. And then the word that's used to describe the place that they ended up actually more refers to like a common area in somebody's household. And what was very popular to do or what was the common thing to do back then is if you had animals, you didn't have a barn. And at night, you brought the animals oh, in to this more open, common space. And the implication is that that is where Mary and Joseph were. And that's why there were animals in a manger present. Not because that they were shoved into a barn. They were in somebody's home, in somebody's house. They just weren't in a bedroom or they weren't in an inn uh, or something of that nature. It, it uh, definitely would not have been a furnished it, yes room and uh, I heard uh, some scholars refer to it today we might think of it as a garage yeah right it was right. enclosed now it wouldn't have been had the comforts of the true inn correct but it was an enclosed place and again it was not uncommon to bring those animals in at night so you're looking at things like that and my dad was stationed in Germany when he was in the military he said it wasn't uncommon for the animals to be underneath the house, you would. They had uh, they lived with someone, and they had an upstairs apartment, and they lived on one end. The other people lived on the other end, and underneath was the stable for the cattle and the, and the different things that they had. Yeah. So it's it's not uncommon to think of it like that. And, and yeah, I think a lot of us think that he was just under some little lean to, <laughs> yeah. you know, and quite literally shoved the cow out of the manger where she was eating her hay yeah, and said, okay, and we got to lay the baby over. here. Yeah. No, it was probably, that's probably all the furnishment was left. And yeah. I would say that, uh, you know, I don't know for sure, but I would, I think I'm safe in saying that, that when they put that together for Mary and Joseph and that baby, it would have been as clean and as nice as they could have provided at the it, time. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have just been just throw them in there amongst the animals yeah. and wish them luck, you know? Yeah, I don't, yeah. Um, so, all that to say, that to, to answer the question, is it wrong to celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birth? I would say we need to be very careful about the message we send when it comes to that. Is it wrong to celebrate Christmas at all? Is it wrong to exchange gifts and uh, get into this festive time? Uh I would say it's no more wrong to celebrate Christmas in that sense as it is to celebrate Thanksgiving or as it is to celebrate Halloween and take your kids out trick-or-treating, which Christians do all the time. Uh, also, Christians love to eat, so no Christian is going to want to give up Thanksgiving. Right? So. <laughs> and you, know, you, you think about that. They had that problem in Colossians and, and Paul reminded them, you don't let somebody judge you based on things like that. If you want to celebrate that day, you go ahead and celebrate it. But don't be mad at the one who doesn't. And if you don't celebrate yeah. it, don't be mad at the one who does. 
those things matter little. Just just let it go. Yeah. And but I'm I, like you, you know, if I were to celebrate it as Christ's birth, I'm teaching that I know that this is the day he was born. Again, we, we are happy he was born. That is a prophecy come true. That is the beginning of the prophecies of the Messiah's coming true. Yep. And then him keeping all those prophecies all the way up into his death. But here's the problem, Michael. It seems like folks, they're all good about the baby lying in a manger, but that's one that they want to keep him. Mm-hmm. They don't want the man that grows up and says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to Father but by yes. me. It's got to be by me. Yeah. They don't want the, the king to grow up and say, if you love me, keep my commandments. They want the little baby. So, you know, that, that can't tell them what to do. That, yeah. that is just a symbol of hope and peace. Not the man who says, I'm going to turn the world on its ear. You have heard it said, you can hate your enemies, but I'm telling you, you got to love them. Everybody wants... Uh... This again, and it's funny because we talked about uh, recently in the the Thursday night group. We we talked about distasteful references, right? But I mean, everybody wants to pray the Ricky Bobby prayer. No, sweet little baby Jesus, and that's that's who we want to pray for, and that's the type of Jesus uh, people want to picture in their minds. But like you're saying, Jesus Jesus grew up. Jesus had a lot of things to say. He did. And Ultimately, Jesus paid a, a hefty price for mine and your and everybody else's salvation. Willingly. Uh, willingly. And that's that's really the thing to, to keep in mind. Um, now, I will say that, as you were saying, some, some in the brotherhood feel very strongly about this. I have heard preachers on the week of Christmas, on Easter Sunday get up and, and say that they know that they're well aware that there are people that attend church on those two days that don't attend church for the rest of the year outside of maybe Mother's Day. Maybe they come on Mother's Day. And that those people are the worst of sinners, that they need to repent of that, and that they need to come to church every single Sunday. On a on a Sunday in a service where you know that there are people there that are not there for the rest of the year outside of these two Sundays, what type of message should we be sending to those people? That they are vile and condemned and we shame them and make them feel bad about only coming to church on those two Sundays? Or do we preach Jesus? Do we encourage them to put their faith more fully in Christ outside of two days a year? What, what should the message be for, for those two Sundays when we know there's people in the crowd that aren't there every single Sunday? Probably one of the most quoted scriptures in the New Testament, John 3.16. Tim Tebow verse. But John 3.17 follows that. It sure does. And I want to read that for you folks. And I hope you go and look this up. John three seventeen, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If you've got an opportunity to preach to someone who is maybe a wayward member, maybe someone who's never heard the gospel before, why would you not preach to them Jesus Christ and Him crucified? 
and what it means and how that is salvation for all of mankind. Then work on, hey, do you understand that there are certain responsibilities that come along with being a Christian? Let's look at those and what the Bible says about those. Instead of, we get the cart before the horse sometimes. Oh, yeah. We sure do. And uh, Honestly, Neil, I think we do that a lot of times with, uh, with baptism, too. Oh, I think so, too. We, we baptize people that it could be their first time coming to a worship service, and they feel compelled, they feel strongly about the message, and they want to be baptized. But do they really know what they've heard? Do they really understand what it means to, to die to self and be raised so that Christ might live in you? Have they counted the cost of, of forsaking the world and living for the kingdom of God? It, it makes you wonder. We do have you know, an example of a man in Acts. We call him the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. And we see that you know, he heard the gospel one time and he obeyed the gospel and was baptized went on his way rejoicing. But what was he doing before? He had, he had all of this experience with Old Testament Scripture absolutely. and knowledge of things that he knew. And where did Philip start with him? Right where he was Right reading. where he was. You know all these things you've read about this Messiah? Let me tell you about the Messiah. And he was a student of the Word enough to know that and I hate to say it this way, but it makes it easy to understand. Jesus checked all the boxes where he was born, where, where, he, where he lived, what he did, the, the things that he did as far as turning the world upside down, the fact that he died and not a bone was broken. All of those, he checked those boxes off and a student of the Bible would have recognized, hey, you, you can't make this happen. I mean... Prophecies such as he, he'll ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Yeah. Now, he might have been able to arrange that, okay? But he sure couldn't arrange where he was born, the flight to Egypt. Yeah. He couldn't have arranged those. Yeah, coming out of Egypt. No. The fact that he, he was raised up in Nazareth, he could not have. And there's so many other things that could not have been manipulated. And this student of the Word would have known that and he, that's what he did. He says, we've all been waiting for this Messiah, and I know this is him. What do I need to do? Yeah. And, you know, go, going back to uh, John three seventeen, Jesus didn't come to, to condemn the world. It, 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 referencing John three seventeen always makes me think back to the adulterous woman who the people dragged to Jesus who was in the temple you think that woman was in the temple every so often to offer sacrifices for her sins and and do whatever the temple rites required of her to do? No. She wasn't there constantly. She wasn't. She didn't hear all the teachings that that everybody else was getting uh, consistently. Otherwise, she probably wouldn't have been living that lifestyle. But when they brought her to Jesus, what did Jesus say? When everybody realized, oh, you know what? I can't, I can't throw a stone at this woman. What did, what did Jesus say after everybody left? What did he tell that woman? Where are your, uh, Where are your accusers? accusers? No one condemned you? N neither do I. Neither do I. 
Go and sin no more. Today we would say, you got a second chance. Go make the best of it. And you know, interestingly enough, and I know the majority of our listeners know this, but think about the implication. That was the Son of God. That was God in the flesh who wrote the law, who gave the law and had every right since he was sinless to condemn that woman immediately. And yet he doesn't. He didn't. What about the woman at the well? She was living in a similar situation. He didn't condemn her either. He almost, with with her, he even almost skirted around it. He acknowledged it. He did. But there was a deeper topic there than just the surface level problems that she had that he was trying to get to. Um, so, yeah. Well, with that being said... Um, you know, we've we've talked about Christmas and we've talked about this tradition of it being December 25th um, and how we need to be really careful with that uh, tradition and teaching that. Are there any other traditions that maybe we should analyze and maybe be a little bit careful about the way we teach things, whether or not uh, Scripture actually does uh, put things in the way that we put things and put them in the same place that we put things. Um, are there any traditions that we do without understanding why, understanding their origins? Uh, and, and I don't know. What do you think? I think it's impossible for man not to develop a tradition because we take comfort in things having order and things being the same. You think about something as simple as getting ready for bed at night, you do things in the same order without thinking about them. Uh, I know many congregations, It's and this is a joke, understand this, (laughs) but I've heard... No phone calls. Right. I've heard folks say, well, we do it the traditional way, you know, two songs of prayer, a song, uh, the sermon, then invitation, and they're joking. Yeah, yeah. But... Do our young people coming up, do they understand that that is not a prescribed exact order that, that needs to happen? Do they understand that you, you could sing more songs, you could sing less songs? You could start off with the sermon and then pray. There is no scriptural specific order other than there's some things that need to happen for us to properly worship Him. And... You know, the big thing there, I think, when I come to worship, am I coming to worship God to give Him my best or am I coming to see what I can get out of it? That's not worship. Nope. Unless you want to call it self-worship. I think that's what uh, a lot of the world does today. Um, They basically are coming to church uh, to hear a message to make them feel better about themselves and... uh, basically to, to enjoy a nice concert uh, in some of these churches. Um, you know, we, we complain a lot, uh, especially those of us. I, I still feel weird saying that I'm in a leadership position, but I know that I am. I don't, just don't want to admit it. <laughs> but those, those of us that are in leadership positions, we complain a lot, or some of us do, that even our own worship is almost a spectator sport uh, where unless you're up on the stage doing something, you're just 
spectating. Um, What's the one thing that we all do, and I hate to use this word because it's not in the Bible, corporately. What is the one thing that we engage, two things, I guess, that we engage in together? Well, the one, one certainly is singing. Singing. And the second one I would propose would be, if we're doing it correctly, is the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Praying, yes, but... You're basically letting that person pray yeah, for you. Unless you're praying along with them. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think that's probably something we need to talk about at some point too, is, is what does public prayer look like? Yes, if I'm leading a public prayer, I need to have in mind the things that need to be prayed. But you may be praying along with me and think of something that you want to interject oh, in your mind. and I do that all the time. Yeah, it's not like... You know, we walk into a crowded room and there's multiple people talking and we, we, we just, we can't pick out the conversations. That's not God. Yeah, yeah. Go right ahead and pray the things that are on your heart as well. He, he requires and wants us to come to Him in prayer. So, but what I'll find, and I, and I get the opportunity to lead singing, and I'll look out and there'll be people there and I'm just going to go and be point blank that will teach a class that will get up and lead a prayer that will preside over the Lord's Supper and their mouth is shut as it can be when it's time to sing. And I don't read anywhere in the Bible that any of us are excused for worshiping God in spirit and truth in every way that He prescribed. And to do that, you think people aren't watching? Oh, And young people for sure. Yeah, yeah, they do. I'll see those same people sit there with their arms crossed, never open their Bible, never jot down a note, never nod their head, I'm with you, I understand what you're saying. They just sit there. And folks, the younger people are watching. You're not opening your Bible, why do I need to open mine? If you're not following along and agreeing or you know, jotting a note down or I want to look that scripture up later or whatever. God forbid throw out an amen. Yeah, throw out an amen. <laughs> Or I'm going to go on and take it one step further. And I've seen adults do this. You're playing on your phone. Ooh, yeah. Adults. Well, I can multitask. Let me let you in on something, folks. Psychology research will tell you this. You can multitask when it doesn't require attention to do one of the things. But two things that require specific attention cannot be done by the human brain at the same time. So if you're watching that game and trying to win the game, then you're not paying attention to the sermon. Yeah. And if you're paying attention to the sermon, you're not going to do very good at the game. That's right. What else needs to be said about that? Uh, so yeah, I mean, Christmas as a secular holiday tradition outside of religion, uh, not, not really an issue, I think, for anybody. Uh, really, the, the the big thing is, we just need to be careful about not. It, it's not even just with Christmas as Jesus's birthday, but there are several traditions that we have that are fine to have, but we still need to be careful that we understand where they come from, whether they're based in Scripture or not, and really be aware of whether or not they're healthy for the current state of the church, because. The church in 2023 is not the same church that existed in 1990, 
1960, 1930. Uh, it's not the same church. Things change, and people change, and what people need changes. Not salvation, not Jesus, but no. the way people learn uh, changes. The way people engage Absolutely. changes. That's more of what I'm getting at. And, and Michael, that's some, I've said this multiple times, being in education for 27 years, and we've got teachers, and y'all are hearing me say this over and over and over and over again. You've got teachers who are exposed to all of these best practices in education to get through to students, to help them remember and retain information, help them learn how to think on their own. They have all this training. Why aren't we utilizing that here in the church? Yep. That's... Why aren't we doing that? Because we're afraid if that woman outside of a worship service gets in and said, let me share some of the things I've learned as a teacher with you we're scared to death that, that we inappropriately put her in a leadership role to the detriment of the younger generation learning. We need to be utilizing the, inf the information. Yes, that's secular information, but it's not changing the Scriptures. It's changing the way I deliver. What, what activities make these children remember? What will make it stick so that child knows that this is important? Where is it that Paul teaches that to the Jews I became a Jew? Oh, I became all to things the, to all I people. I became all things to all people. That by, by he, some means might save some. Yeah. You, look at, you look at Paul teaching to, to Jews... He taught them from the Old Testament, right? You you talk you you see Paul teaching the Gentiles. He taught them a different way because they weren't familiar with the Old Testament. You, for example, you see Paul in Athens in the Book of Acts, mm -hmm. and he uses an idol that they created to an unknown god, and he uses that to preach Jesus, because those people wouldn't understand the Old Testament, but they understood that. Maybe there's a God that we don't know about. And so Paul said, well, let me tell you about him. Paul became all things to all people so that he might win some. Absolutely. And that's uh, 1 Corinthians 9, for those who want to look that up. 1 Corinthians 9. You notice he started with what they knew. He built on what they knew. Yes. Rather than tell them, oh, you're a pagan nation. You're doing all kinds of things wrong. The things you're doing are going to send you to hell. You'll never get to spend time with the eternal Father, the one you're, you're hoping to please. You're... No, he said... Hey, you understand this part? Let me let me take from this part and go forward with you. And, and we've got to remember that, folks. When we're teaching someone, start with what they know. Start with common ground that they understand. Yeah. And then allow the scriptures to do the, the talking. Uh, I love to preach, and you do too, Michael. Yeah. But as much studying as we do and as many neat sayings as we might come up with, we will never say anything more powerful than what's right there in that book. Now, I may say it in such a way that it, that it clicks with somebody, but the message, the power, the power is in that word. It's not in the way that, that I say it. It's certainly not in me. It's in the word. My job is to get it to the people in a way that they can understand so they can go back the, and go, oh, uh, the, that's what I need. I, I heard it put this way recently that um, that good and proper preaching is simply representing what has already been presented in Scripture. 
You're not changing it. You're not adding to it. You're not making it better. You're just presenting it in a new and different way than it was originally presented because people are a lot different than they were in 4980. You know, I've got a good buddy who is, uh, I consider a very good preacher. He's with, uh, we spend a lot of time together. In fact, we've been to Africa together. And he is very knowledgeable. And, but he will tell you when he starts reading the, the scriptures and it's all about the farming analogies that Jesus mm-hmm. used, he says, that's not me. I didn't grow up on a farm. I, don't, nope. I have to research <laughs> to make that make sense to me. I yes. need to go back to my biology. Yep. What does, how does a seed germinate? And, okay, now that makes sense to me. He said, so my job is to take that same principle and tell it in a story or a parable in a way that somebody who don't have a clue about farming can understand, but maybe they understand, you know, cars. Well, maybe I can make a car analogy that, that or maybe they understand whatever it is. Maybe modern day medicine, if you're teaching to a congregation that has a lot of doctors in it. Folks, there are a lot of intelligent people out there that can read and study the Bible and sometimes it just doesn't click until somebody happens to say one little phrase and, oh, now that makes sense now. Yeah. That's how that fits. Yeah. Unfortunately, I do that constantly as I'm going through reading. Why didn't I catch that before? Yep. Happens all the time. Uh, well, we're coming up on about as long as we usually like yeah. to spend on these. I do have one bonus question that I just want to spend a couple minutes on. Uh, I, Lexi uh, showed me a post recently I don't really get on Facebook myself but Lexi showed me a post recently of, uh, of an individual um, a Christian who uh, posted that they have started celebrating Hanukkah uh, because the, the explanation that they gave along the line was, was along the lines of because Hanukkah would have been important to Jesus they think Hanukkah is important and they are going to to celebrate Hanukkah because it was important to Jesus. Now, I have some thoughts on this and I know I'm kind of uh, blindsiding you a little bit with that, <laughs> but you know, I've had time to think about this, but what's your what's your initial thoughts on celebrating Hanukkah because it would have been important to, to Jesus? Well, the first thing that my mind goes to is because of Jesus being a Jew and being under the Old Testament law, sacrifices would have been important to him, Um, whether it be animal or grain or wine or whatever, those would have been important. There were certain days and feasts and festivals that would have been important to him. Things that we don't do. Things that we don't do. They were prescribed for the Jewish people at that time. When Jesus came on the scene, he did away with the, the, the laws of, uh, of the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Now, there are some things that we should do uh, yeah, yeah. and must do. There are things that we shouldn't do and cannot do. I'm not saying that. But that law is passed. The New Testament, the Hebrew writer, spends some time on talking about yep. the superiority of Jesus Christ as our high priest. Again, I'm not going to judge you on a new moon or a Sabbath or a feast day or what if you yeah. want to do that. But understand that 
the reasoning behind that, because it would have been important to Jesus, Jesus made it clear what was important to him. Yeah. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. The very being, the very fabric of your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, if you'll do those two things, and I'm paraphrasing, you don't have to worry about the rest because all the law and all the prophets hang on these two. If you will do those two, you don't have to worry about anything else. Yep. Uh, that, that, was, that was my thoughts as well. Um, additional to that, let's be honest, Hanukkah was, is not something that was prescribed by Old Testament Scripture. Hanukkah was a tradition that became a, a thing that was recognized by the rabbis after the Old Testament was concluded during the 400 years during the, the time of the Maccabees uh, when basically uh, for those that don't know Hanukkah uh, began being recognized the, the year after there was a rebellion um, against the people that held Jerusalem at the time led by the Maccabees who were a Jewish men and a group of people, family, whatever. But um, when they retook the temple, they, they had enough oil for a candle to last overnight. But that candle ended up burning for eight days. And they saw it as a miracle, as a sign from God. And so the next year, at the same time, the rabbi said, we're going to celebrate this from now on uh, as, as a miracle. Um, so it wasn't even something that was in the Old Testament law as something that they had to do. It was something that was a tradition that the Jewish people had that just got carried forward. Uh, not, so it wasn't even to the level of law, like a lot of the feasts and things like that that we were talking about, but it, it was just an accepted tradition uh, that, that the Jewish people did think was important. They still think it's important. But um, What was the problem with some of those traditions, though? You teach for doctrine, the commandments of men. Those traditions have become more important than doctrine, some of those. Yeah. 680 plus, I can't remember the exact number, so, yeah. had been added by man. Yep. So I guess the bottom line that we're getting at is, I, th I think it's summed up in this. Whatever you do in word or do, deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Yep. Whatever you do, do heartily as unto the Lord. If what you're doing can bring glory to God, then great. If it doesn't take away or add to, that becomes your opinion. But if it does anything that would take away from Christ being the Messiah and His death and the meaning of that death, then it needs to stop. Yeah. Don't do anything that would take away from that because that is the most important gift that we have was the fact that He gave His life that we might have eternal life. And he left us the perfect example and the complete instructions of how we can enjoy that eternal life. That is a perfect note to end on. Neil, why don't you close us out with a word of prayer? Absolutely. Lord in heaven, it is such a privilege to know that you hear us and you expect us to come before your throne. And it, it, it's just unbelievable that you would hear us and want to hear us. May we never take this privilege for granted. May we realize that you look upon our lives and you care. You care so much that you sent your son. 
And as we think about this time of year when the world takes its time to think about Christ, Lord, help us to take advantage of their thinking on our Savior and let us show Him in our lives to have an opportunity to teach more about Him that they might fully understand just how precious not only the birth, oh, but that perfect life and that death and most importantly that resurrection wherein lies the hope of every Christian. May we always show the world that we truly believe that Christ is the Messiah, that He is our Savior and we want the whole world to know that they might have an opportunity to be saved as well. Guide us every day in every way and that you might receive all the glory for it's in Christ we do pray. Amen. Amen.